morning, everybody. Would you join me for the reading of God's word? Please stand if you're able. Jesus continued, There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me one of your hired servants. So he got up and he went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Luke 15, 11 through 24. This is God's word. Lord, we thank you for your word, your word that is always true. It is always life-giving. We thank you for this family that we have, and we thank you for Pastor Andrew who leads and teaches us so well. Thank you for everyone that supports Zion, and we thank you, Lord, for all that are coming to be part of this family. Amen. You may be seated. Hanging in the Hermitage in St. Petersburg is this painting, The Return of the Prodigal Son by Rembrandt. The painting is considered uh, not only one of Rembrandt's best, but amongst some of one of the greatest paintings ever painted. He did this painting um, later in his life, and many Rembrandt scholars believe that um, Rembrandt identified so much with this story that he finds himself in each of the characters in it. What's interesting is this isn't the only time Rembrandt painted or drew this. He drew it several times, but this is his most famous. It seems that this story that we just read resonated with him at a profound level. And he isn't the only one. Um, last year, Celeste and I were in Portland um, at Powell's Bookstore, which is like legendary, and I came across um, a book by the author Henry Nowen titled with the same title, Par uh, The Parable of the Prodigal Son. Or the return of the prodigal son, rather. And um, his Rembrandt's painting is the cover of the book. And in Henry Nouwen's book, he tells of his journey to actually go see the painting in St. Petersburg. 
and how he had a friend who uh, knew the head of the restoration department. So instead of having to come through the tourist entrance, they actually snuck him in the side of the building to go and to be there for extended hours with the painting. From the moment he arrived there, he stayed until they kicked him out of the building, staring only at this painting. And he did this for days until finally he left. Now, we could talk about the incredible work this painting is. We could talk about its composition, Rembrandt's brilliant use of light, um, all the incredible detail that Rembrandt used, um, showing that the, the, the prodigal son is, is missing a sandal and his hair is falling out from like strat. We could do all of that. But I think we'd kind of miss the point. If we were just to sit with this painting and think deeply on it, we would begin to feel what Rembrandt felt. The very stirring that led him to paint this beautiful painting. It is the joy of homecoming. Here in Luke 15, the story we just read was the inspiration behind the painting. And here in our teaching text, Jesus has gone on to tell the story, this story along with two others as a response to Pharisees in his midst. Luke 15 opens up with these lines. Now, the tax collectors and sinners were all gathering around to hear Jesus. But the Pharisees and the teachers of the law muttered, this man welcomes sinners and eats with them. And so Jesus begins to go into three different stories about God's heart for the lost. And they culminate in the story we just read. Now, Jesus uses parable for, parables for a variety of reasons, but one of the most important reasons Jesus uses parables is because stories have, the way, have a way of getting to the heart of something. Jesus was trying to communicate to two different people, the tax collectors and the sinners gathered to hear him preach, as well as the religious leaders and teachers who stood off at a distance criticizing him. Now, these stories that Jesus told have a way of bypassing the intellect and speaking straight to the human heart. And at the heart of this story, this parable, is a father's love. Now, this story has become known as the parable of the prodigal son or the parable of the lost son. Now, there's nothing wrong with that title, but it's only looking at the story through one lens, and I think there's three different lenses Jesus wants us to see this story through. There's two sons and a father. And I believe Jesus invites us to see the story through all three of their lenses. Tim Keller, um, the late great church planner and pioneer in New York, uh, argues that the parable, the parable should be titled The Parable of the Prodigal God. This word uh, prodigal means reckless, uh, particularly like reckless with finances. And so... I know there's people who have a stink with it, but in this story, this is very much a story about God's prodigal love, his reckless love for the sons. And so um, to tell this story, I want to spend our time today focusing on just one of the sons, the younger son. Now, for there to be a homecoming, there must first be a departure from home. And this is where our story begins. Verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man with, who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. And so 
He divided his property between them. And not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. And there, squandered his wealth in wild living. The scene opens up with the son asking the father for his inheritance. Now, in our, to our modern ears, this sounds a bit entitled, if we're kind of honest, right? Like, it's a bit rude <laughs> to, to come and say, give me my inheritance. But to the ancient ears, it wasn't just the smell of entitlement. It was the disintegration of relationship. The, son was, the son's request was, in effect, to say he no longer wanted to be a part of the family. He just wanted to take the money and run. One scholar says that this request was tantamount to wishing that the father was dead. This kind of request culturally was to be met with one response, a violent outcasting of the son. If you were to make a request like this, um, as, as we would say in the streets, that's fighting words. You know what I'm saying? And so in this culture, that would have been immediately met with some physical resistance and outcasting of the son because of how dishonoring and disrespectful that request is. It's hard to translate exactly how, much, how offensive and hurtful this would be, but in effect, it would be like saying this, Dad, I'm tired of waiting for you to die. Give me what is mine so I don't have to deal with you anymore. You can imagine the type of response that that should have been met with. You see, the son doesn't want relationship with the father. Hear this. He merely wants what the father can give him. Now, how did the son get here? Something began to grow in the heart of the son. A lie that began as a seed had now grown into a tree that blocked the light of truth. And there in the shade of the lie, he begins to hear the whispers. The first is that the father doesn't actually love me. You see, living underneath the father's roof means living under his what? Rules. And the son couldn't stand that. This was the area of tension, the wrestling for control. You see, the younger son did not see the father's rules as loving boundaries, but as restrictive and controlling. And so the son thought to himself, if he really loved me, he would let me do what I want. It is a wrestle for what the son perceived as freedom. Secondarily, it's that the second lie would be that life would be better without the father. If there was some way I could still have all the stuff my father can give without having to deal with him, that would be awesome. I would be able to finally live. You see, he's the problem. He is the one getting in the way of me really living. And over time, these whispers get loud and so loud, he finally demands from the father, give me what is mine. This sounds familiar because it is. At the core of this phrase, give me what is mine, is a lie as old as creation. I must take what is mine because God is holding out on me. One scholar says this, there is only one temptation. 
All particular temptations are expressed of this one original or primordial temptation. This is the temptation to believe that the fulfillment of the desire of the human heart depends entirely on us. Many of us believe, if we were really honest with ourselves, that God is the wet blanket on humanity, not the beautiful mind behind it. That somehow God is restrictive and has these arbitrary rules and that, you know, there's things that are always, what's God's big deal about this or that? And we believe that somehow God is holding out on us and that we must take matters into our own hands or else we will miss out on really living. You see, we want all the blessings of living in God's good world. We just don't want him. And isn't this the vision of the good life that secularism promises? Isn't this exactly what secularism has been preaching for hundreds of years? That we can reach the utopia filled with joy, peace, hope, love, and the only way to get there is to unshackle ourselves from the idea of God. In the language of Mark Sayers, we want the kingdom without the king. And so we listen to the whisper of the oldest lie, we must take what is ours And this leads us away from home. You see, the picture becomes clear now. The Father is God, and we are the Son. Now, what's equally as shocking as the Son's demand is the Father's response. Notice what the text says. So he divided his property between them. The Father gives the Son what he wants. To the parents in the room... How would you respond if your child made this demand, right? Came to you, said, I'm sick of you living, basically. Can you just give me what I want and so we could just break off relationship, right? How, what would your response be? It may be a million things, but it surely wouldn't be, let's go to the bank and cash out my savings, right? That would be the last response you would have. But the father gives it away. Why on earth would he do that? The father doesn't owe the son anything. He's already given him everything. Any father of this time would have disowned this son for even asking such a dishonoring thing. But the father realized two things. First, that love is a choice. And second, love is the most valuable thing the father has to offer. First, love is a choice. Sure, the father could have denied the son's request, forced the son to stay, but the father doesn't want blind obedience. He wants relationship with his son. And so no amount of pleading or control will cause the son to love him back. So the father must let him go. Secondly, the most valuable thing the father has is his love. The son is asking for things, for money, And yes, it comes at a great cost, and we'll get to that in a moment. But that is not the most valuable thing the Father has to give. It is his love. Some of you had parents who tried to buy your love. That they were absent or distant, but come around with big gifts to hopefully make up for all the times that they weren't there. And you know, and I know, that you would have traded all of those gifts just to have some time with your parent, for them just to show up to the soccer game or be there and walk you through your first breakup rather than material things. 
you realize how shallow that is. Others of you did not grow grow up with a lot of wealth, but you were loved deeply by your parents. And you know life felt rich because of how well you were loved. And that you didn't even realize you were going without because of how well you were loved. You realize that things, finances, financial security is a really shallow substance for a relationship. Only in giving the son what he thinks he wants will the son realize he already had everything. And so the father divides it between them. Now what's interesting is uh, the word translated property here is not the Greek word used for land or house or property. It's the word bios, which we get the word biology, meaning life. So the text literally reads, the father divided his life among his sons. He divided his life between them. Why? Well, there was no Wells Fargo in Jesus' day. There was no 401k. All of your wealth was tied up in your land. And for many people, land was something they inherited. It is something that has been gone through their family lineage. And so the land was not just an asset. It was tied to the father's story, the father's life, and his father, and his father. And so for the son to come and ask for his inheritance is to ask his father this, to sell all the land and to give him the money, to tear apart his life, and to give it away to his son. Now, the way that it would work in ancient times is that the eldest son would get two-thirds of the inheritance, and the younger son would get a third of the inheritance. And so the father would have to sell off a third of all that he owns to be able to basically cash out and give this to his son. And so the father sells the land he loves, the storied land of his father's, the story of his life. Now notice, the son gives no thought to what he just did to the father because he has his eyes set on a distant country. Notice what the text says next. Not long after that, the younger son got together all he had and set off for a distant country. This phrase, distant country, was um, a, a Jewish phrase used to describe living in a pagan place, one that is specifically set up and against God. And so the son leaves to a distant country to get away from the father and, in fact, to use his inheritance to support the very things the father is against. Henry Nouwen, in that book, says this, Leaving home is then much more than a historical event bound to time and place. It is a denial of the spiritual reality that I belong to God with every part of my being and that God holds me in an eternal embrace and that I am indeed carved in the palms of God's hand and hidden in their shadows. Leaving home is living as though I do not yet have a home and must look far and wide to find one. I am the prodigal son every time I search for unconditional love where it cannot be found. Leaving for a distant country is not a one-time event. It is the posture of the human heart. 
We live in a distant country when we are looking for love in all the wrong places, as the country song goes. We live in a distant country when we are, when we are looking for love in our careers, when we look for love in our promotions and achievement, only for there always to be another rung in the ladder we must climb. A distant country could be a relationship. We look for love in the arms of another only to feel more empty than before. A distant country could be financial status. We look for love in the area of financial security, but no amount of things or money in the bank cure the angst of living. We, uh, a distant country could be uh, seeing the world through travel. We look for love through experiences, but no amount of miles flown or places seen can ever make you feel at home. You see, it is in the distant places we hide from God. And it is in these distant places we squander our inheritance. Notice the last line. There he squandered his wealth in wild living. So the son squanders all of his money, chasing after the things he thought he wanted. But here is what he soon realized. What he wants is never enough. Nothing brought about satisfaction. John Mark Comer, desire is infinite, meaning it has no limit. There is no point at which desire is ever satisfied. And because we are finite, we inhabit time and space. I'm in one body, one gender, one marriage, one city, one job, one family, one life, one story. The end result is restlessness. We live with a chronic state of unsatisfied desire, like an itch that just no matter how often you scratch it, it does not go away. Uh, Thomas Aquinas, a famous church thinker, thought deeply about what it would require for someone to be satisfied through experiences in this life. And he said, it would take everything and still would not be enough. You see, the son lost everything trying to experience everything, but nothing satisfied. One day, he had nothing, and he squandered it all. There are some in the room right now who are living like the younger son. You are running after things that do not satisfy. And you are squandering the most valuable resource you have, your life. Much of your life and energy and thinking goes towards things that never satisfy. And when it is all said and done, it feels like a waste, like you've squandered your life. A question to consider. If the things you keep doing were really bringing about fulfillment in your life, then why do they always require more of you? Why do they always demand for more? Sometimes it takes us coming to the end of ourselves for us to really wake up to reality. The story continues. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in the whole country, 
and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself out as a citizen of that country who sent him to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with pods of the pig, that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare, and here I am starving to death. Things were great until they weren't. Distraction can be a lot of fun, but it does nothing to remedy the deep needs that we all have. Right? When the good times are rolling, who cares? Right? Things are awesome. But when the good times end, it begins to leave us asking the most important questions of life, meaning, and faith. You see, crisis always exposes what's underneath, what's bubbling beneath the surface. It exposes trust structures of what our lives are actually built on, and often it exposes how shallow our inner life can be. I remember much of my pastoral conversations with people mid-pandemic where they were no longer able to distract themselves by all these exterior things, but had a lot of time to be alone in a room and think. They were having massive revelations. They had a desire to pursue God more wholeheartedly and shift the trajectory of their life. And all of that was great until things opened up again. And then suddenly, the schedules were full again. And it was hard to have time, and it was hard to meditate and think on the scriptures and pray and do whatever. And before they knew it, their life was back to what it was. Our world is filled with a bunch of beautiful distractions, but they're just that, distractions from things that matter most. Many of you are afraid of silence because you're unsure of what you'll find when you get there. You're worried about what you will find when you get there, the deep unrest of your inner life. But it is often crisis that brings us to the end of ourselves that gets us to deal in the things that actually matter. In all of his reckless living, the younger son found himself alone, empty, longing, and in need. Again, now, addiction might be the best word to explain the lostness that so deeply permeates contemporary society. Our addictions make us cling to what the world proclaims as the keys to self-fulfillment, accumulation of wealth and power, attainment of status and admiration, lavish consumption of food and drink and sexual gratification without distinguishing between lust and love. But these addictions create expectations that cannot but fail to satisfy our deepest needs. As long as we live within the world's delusions, our addictions condemn us to its futile quests in a distant country, leaving us to face an endless series of disillusionments while our, while our sense of self remains unfulfilled. What if I told you that coming to the end of yourself and finding yourself empty, longing, and in need was actually good news. You see, many of us live under the delusion of self-sufficiency, 
right? We are the masters of our own destinies. We are the captain of our own souls. You know, we will form our future. And that's all good and fine until we face suffering. Until we are face-to-face with pain and hurt in the world. You see, suffering brings a whole different type of clarity. And you actually begin to see things how they are. And here's a few things you notice. One, you realize very quickly how much you're not in control of. How much you were at the will of so many other things around you that no matter how many positive self-talks and podcasts you listen to, you can't change some things. The world's a really big place, and you're kind of small in the whole scheme of things. And you begin to realize, I actually have very little control. The second thing you realize is this. Things you thought mattered don't, and things you didn't think mattered actually do. Right? The things you were so stressed about that were so important, when you face suffering, you could care less about. And the things in your life that were on the fringes suddenly become vitally important. Nobody on their deathbed wishes, I should have taken that overtime. Nobody on their deathbed wishes, I should have got the iPhone 15. I shouldn't have stayed at 14. I should have made the way up, right? Nobody, nobody thinks of those things. Everybody always thinks of relationships and time spent, and those are the things we put on the fringes. Those are the things that find the back burners. Nobody says, I should have binge-watched all of The Walking Dead. My life is unfulfilled. No, it was always in that moment that you realize you've squandered your time on things that didn't matter. Suffering teaches us that. And third, suffering teaches us that the life that I am living isn't bearing the kind of fruit it promised. Brothers and sisters, the secular myth is failing. You see, the world's vision of the good life talks a big game, but fails to deliver what it promises. Mark Sayer says this, Secularism's attempt to attack all sacred orders and live without belief ultimately leads to exhaustion. And a lack of meaning throws it back into a religious impulse. The most common phrase I hear when I ask people, how are you doing, is they say, I'm tired. I'm exhausted because they keep drinking from the wrong well, hoping that it would quench the thirst. You see, guys, sin isn't just about corrective behavior, though that matters. It's about learning to drink from the well that actually satisfies, and it's Jesus. And isn't this the conversation he has with the woman at the well? You're looking for living water, and I'm it. It's the invitation from the Lord. Most people I talk to who live according to the secular script are exhausted because there's always something else. There's always a new mountain to climb, new terminology to learn, right? New, th- no, new always, more and more and more. It demands, it demands, it demands but it never satisfies. Secularism leaves behind a ruin of meaninglessness in its tracks. 
Can I speak into our church for a moment? I fear that we've believed the lie that life without God satisfies. I fear that we believe that lie. Barna did a study recently, and 94% of millennial Christians believe the best thing that someone could do is to come into relationship with Jesus. Almost 50% of them think it's wrong to share their faith. How do those live in tension? I fear that we have become so compassionate, we've grown complacent. Now, all the nuance here, I'm not arguing for like crude behavior as followers of Jesus and, 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 and postures that aren't productive towards evangelism. But I, feel, I fear that we've swung to the opposite end of the spectrum. That we're like, if I just serve really good coffee, they'll know Jesus loves them. Or if I just fill out their insurance document properly, they will just know that Jesus loves them. That somehow through osmosis, if I just lay hands, right, on the burger that I just made for these people, that somehow as they taste the beef, they will realize I'm loved by the God of the heavens, right? How will they know unless somebody tells them? How will they know? And, and again, all the nuances about strategic evangelism and relational, all that stuff. But at some point, something has to be said, and here's my fear, that we actually believe that we're inconveniencing people with the message of the gospel. I hear it in our language. Well, I didn't want to bother them. Bother them? Do you not know that, that you alone have the thing that you can offer them that would give them eternal life? This message about Jesus? And it's like, oh, but they look busy. I don't want them not to like me. Oh, my, my fear is we've gotten so compassionate, we've grown complacent. And these things are held in a beautiful tension. Compassion is held in tension with evangelism for sure. But my fear is that we're just hoping that somehow their cheerio is aligned in the morning and it tells them that God loves them. But we are the messengers being sent into their lives. And we say nothing. I fear that we've bought the lie that secularism works. That somehow people are just going to like live good lives and it's all right. You're going to take your own way. I'll take my own way. And, you know, hopefully Jesus meets you somewhere along the way. The only problem with that is everything that Jesus said. Jesus said there's two paths. One that leads to destruction and one that leads to life. And wide is the way that leads to destruction and narrow is the way that finds life. There's two paths. And the only way... It's through Jesus. We must awaken to that again. We must reclaim our heritage of faith and be reminded the world needs the gospel. Secularism fails. Do you realize that right now the soil is ripe for the good news about Jesus because secularism doesn't work. It doesn't give people paradigms for meaning or purpose or hope or how to handle suffering. There's none of that. It's just eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow you die. That's it. That's all that's being offered. And we sit on the sidelines quiet, saying nothing. The invitation, brothers and sisters, is to share the good news. It's to tell the story of Jesus. It's to point them to the one that has life.
parable of the prodigal son is there is nothing in this world that will satisfy. Augustine says, our souls are restless until they find their home in God. Let's stop believing the lie that secularism works because it doesn't. Let's hold fast to the message that we know brings about life, the message of Jesus. We need a wake-up call. People are hungrier than ever for meaning, and it is our call to step into the gap and share the good, about, good news about Jesus. Because where the road of secularism ultimately leads is, be, is to a place of us becoming less than human. Notice what happens with the son. He loses everything, so he hires himself out to somebody, uh, to a farmer in town. And the only job that he could get is feeding the pigs. Now it's a famine, so it's important to keep these fi- pigs fed. So he's pouring out seeds and pods into this slop. If you've ever seen what pigs eat, it's disgusting, okay? It, like, even makes a gross noise. Like, think about, like, the lunch, the movies where the lunch lady has, like, that scoop of, like, mystery gulp, and it's, like, on the plate. That's pig slop. And he's saying, a little bit of salt, a little bit of pepper, eh, you know, not that bad, right? And it's, like, dude, questionable, right? You're in a tough place. If you're looking at pig slop thinking, I can make a burrito, right? I can make it work. You see, the son began to see himself as equal to the pigs. He began to see himself as just another being, just another creature, no longer held up with the dignity and value of being a human being made in God's image. And this is the place where secularism leads us. What the younger son realized is that nobody was coming for help. Nobody actually cared about him, right? When his bank account was full, Shots on me at the club. Everyone's like, we're best friends. Until that card gets declined. And then suddenly no one's showing up to the party anymore. You get the, this number has been disconnected, right? Nobody's calling. Nobody's texting back. Nobody's there for you. Because as soon as you no longer can contribute to the things they want, they no longer have need for you. You begin to be treated as less than human. Here's the thing. As a human being, you were made for life with God, period. That's what you were designed for. And to live contrary to that is for you over time to become less and less human because you're not living into the very purpose for which you were made. And so he gets to the point, this younger son, where eating pig slop was desirable. Again now in When the younger son was no longer considered a human being by people around him, he felt the profundity of his isolation, the deepest loneliness one can experience. He was truly lost, and it was this complete lostness that brought him to his senses. Notice the line. When he came to to his senses, he said, How many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am, starving to death. This phrase, come to his sentence, carries the idea of repentance. It's waking up to his failures. He begins to realize how good he actually had it at home. 
scholar William Barclay says this, Jesus paid mankind the greatest compliment it has ever been paid with the phrase, when he came to himself. He said, Jesus believed that so long as a man was away from God, he was not truly himself. He was only truly himself when he was on the way home. It is only through the practice of repentance that we reclaim our humanity, that we realign with our purpose. And so the son comes to his senses and begins to take the long journey home. Verse 18, I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. So he got up and went to his father. Think about where things ended with him and the dad the last time he left. The father hands over an envelope with all the cash, and you could see heartbreak in the father's eyes as he turns it over because he realizes this is the death of their relationship. And not because he wants it, because his son doesn't want it. With a cold shoulder, he puts it in his backpack, zips it up, and turns his back on his dad. That was the last interaction they had. What kind of sorry do you come up with? This is what he's rehearsing in his mind. I gotta give an epic speech, right? I gotta, I gotta let him know how sorry I am. I gotta confess my own foolishness. And so he begins to rehearse his apology. And here's what he's thinking. I'm gonna earn my way back, you know? I lost my opportunity to be a son. I forfeited that when I told him I wanted him dead. But maybe, just maybe, he'll bring me on the staff. Maybe he'll let me just work for him, and at least I'll know I'll have a meal. And maybe we can't be father and son, but maybe he could be my boss, and I could work my way back into his affections. He wanted to earn his way back to the father. And it's a long journey home for him to think about all the mistakes he made and all the ways he needs to apologize, but either way, he chooses to get up. And the story continues. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. And he ran to his son and he threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you and I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandal on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let us have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they began to celebrate. The father is standing on the front porch. And he sees a figure in the distance. And there were days, weeks, he dreamed about his son coming home. Anytime there'd be somebody over the horizon, he would hope, he would long, that it would be him. But it turns out to be just the mailman, right? Just the delivery guy, just the neighbor coming over to ask for a cup of sugar. And every time, disappointment settled in. And sure enough, another figure's on the horizon. And as he gets closer, his eyes feel like they deceive him. Could it be? Is it him? And second, 
He sees the way his son walks, which he watched him as a five-year-old, you know, running through the same plot of land. He sees him coming towards him, and he realizes it's my son. And he doesn't even think. A part of the Jewish custom was men wore equivalent to like a dress, like a shirt dress. Anybody who wears dresses will tell you they are not made for running of any kind, right? So what the father has to do is hike up the dress so that he's able to run. Jewish men did not do this, ever. This was a sign of cultural shame. And running, that's what kids do. The father has no cares. His son is home. So he hikes up his dress and books it. Runs out to meet his son. Now the text tells us that he, um, he uh, threw his arms around him. The, the imagery here is literally hung around his neck. The father dove on him and wrapped his arms around his neck and welcomed him back. Notice, the son hadn't even said sorry yet. Now, put yourself in that shoes. You're the father. Your kid just cashed out your 401k and dipped, said, I hate you, don't ever talk to me again. What's the conversation? You're waiting at the porch. Well, 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 look at here, Mr. Know-it-all. How are things, right? Whatever, you know? Your heart could be jacked up in all sorts of ways. And or like, this better be good, right? This better be good. Now, it's easy to be like, oh, that's so not compassionate. This son told you he wanted you dead, you know? Better say something good, right? I want the boombox outside of the front porch playing the song, saying you're sorry, something, you know? But no, the father runs towards him. And the son begins to apologize. Dad, I'm sorry. Dad, I'm sorry. Shh, there's no time for that. It's time for a celebration. Because there were days and weeks I worried you weren't even alive. But you're alive. Now all the imagery here is beautiful. Uh, the robe is a, sign, is, a, is a royal sign, a sign of sonship, a sign of belonging to the family. The ring is actually a signet ring. It gives the son authority to act as the father. So you would stamp a signet ring on official documents as a way of saying that this is a, I'm a part of the family. Um, provides sandals on his feet, and then this idea of killing the fatted calf, which I know all of you are like super stoked for, like the fatted calf, yes, we've all been waiting, right? No, but in, in ancient times, chances are you didn't have a meal with meat. It was so sacred, it was so special, it was reserved for special occasions. And now a fatted calf would fill, feed up to like 80 people. I mean, it's a massive amount of beef <laughs> that they're gonna be eating, right? And so it's only reserved for the greatest of moments like weddings. And the father spares no expense for his son because he thought he was dead and he returned alive. And the only response to this story is celebration. This is God's heart. He didn't say, so what did you do while you were gone? Do you have any money left? Do you know how hurt your mother is? None of it. He just welcomes him back. This is Jesus' heart. There's no where have you been, what have you done, I've been waiting, there's just I'm so happy you're home. Let's celebrate.
I want to close our time with a story by Philip Yancey that he tells in his book, What's So Amazing About Grace? And this is a retelling of the story that we just heard, but he does it in such a way that it really contextualizes the story for us. And as I tell this story, I just want you to let the story kind of wash over you. He tells the story of a teenage girl who grew up in a cherry orchard just uh, in rural Michigan, just outside of Detroit. And her parents were a bit old-fashioned. They overreacted about her nose ring and the music she listened to, and there were battles over the length of her skirt. And so tensions in the home continued to escalate as she got older. And her parents, in an effort to hopefully get her to see the consequences of her actions, begin to ground her and take things away, take her phone, take her social media away. And one day, things reach a tipping point. She gets grounded again, and seething with anger, she shouts at her dad, I hate you, as he's knocking on the door to talk it over after an argument. And that night, she plans her escape, one that she's planning in her mind a million times over. She runs away. Now, she had been to Detroit when she was a kid. Um, she went there with her church youth group to watch a Detroit Tigers game, and she remembers sit at night, sitting at uh, the, the dinner table, hearing the news in the background as they would hear of the gangs and drugs and violence in downtown Detroit. And her father would mumber underneath his breath, who would live there? so broken. And she thinks to herself, that would be the very last place they would look for me. Maybe they thought I would go to the sunny beaches of California or Florida, but they would never think I'd go to Detroit. And so her second day in the city, she meets a man who drives the nicest car she has ever seen. And he offers her her ride. He buys her lunch. He arranges a place for her to stay. And he gives her some pills that make her feel better than she's ever felt before. And it was at this moment she decides she was right all along. Her parents were keeping her from all of this. The good life continues for a while. The man that picked her up she now calls boss. And he tells her the things she must do to stay where she is at. She's underage, which means that he can charge a premium for her. And she's living in a penthouse and orders room service whenever she wants. And occasionally, she thinks about her parents back home. But now, their lives on that cherry orchard feel so boring. One day, she is shopping in a grocery store. And a quick jolt of fear runs through her body as she sees her picture on the back of a milk carton. Have you seen this girl? But that girl looks like a stranger. Her hair is different. She's covered in tattoos and piercings. And even if someone did recognize her, nobody would call because all her friends are runaways too. After a year or so, some signs of illness start to appear. And just as quickly as the boss picked her up, he drops her off without a penny to her name. When winter shows up, she finds herself sleeping on a metal grate outside of one of those big department stores. And sleeping isn't exactly the right word. A teenage girl in downtown Detroit can never really relax her guard. 
and dark bands, dark band circles around her eyes, and her cough worsens. She doesn't feel like a woman anymore. She feels like a lost girl, cold and frightened. She begins to whimper. Her pockets are empty. She's hungry. And an image comes to her mind. She remembers the cherry trees blooming in May and how her golden retriever used to dash through the rows of trees chasing a tennis ball. She mutters to herself, why did I ever leave? More than anywhere else in the world, she wants to be home. She builds up the courage to call. And when she calls, she calls three times, but each time she gets the voicemail. So on the third time she leads a voicemail, she says, Dad, Mom, it's me. I was wondering about maybe coming home. I'm getting on a bus your way, and I'll be there about midnight your time. If you're not there, well, I guess I'll just stay on the bus until it hits Canada. The bus ride is seven hours long. And during that time, she wonders if Maybe her parents were out of town, or they didn't get the message, or maybe they thought she was dead, or maybe, maybe she should have waited in Detroit and tried to wait for a call back, and her thoughts bounce back and forth, and she begins to prepare her speech. Dad, I'm sorry. There's nothing else that I can say other than I'm sorry. It's all my fault. Will you please forgive me? Suddenly, a voice comes over the intercom, 15 minutes until she's home. She sighs anxiously, looking down at her stained fingertips. She wonders if her parents will notice. The bus finally rolls up to the station, the hissing of the brakes. She walks into the terminal, having no idea what to expect. But none of the thousand scenes she played in her mind could prepare her for what she's about to see. She sees about 40 people waiting there. But she knows these people. It's her family. It's her cousins, her uncles, aunties, and even grandma in a wheelchair made it out at midnight. And she reads the banner, Welcome Home. And then, emerging from the crowd, she sees her dad. And she stares at him through tears welling up in her eyes like hot mercury. And a guttural cry, she says, Dad, I'm sorry. And he holds her. And he shushes her like when she was a kid and she was scared at night. He says, Daughter, we have no time for that. You'll be late for your party. We're so happy you're home. This is the heart of Jesus. Yancey concludes by saying this. Jesus' stories of extravagant grace include no catch, no loophole disqualifying us from God's love. Each has at its core an ending too good to be true or so good It must be true. Would you join me in standing?
I believe there's two invitations for us this morning. The first is to come home. Some of you have been wandering, have been living in a distant country. And this does not mean you don't believe. But maybe it's hit the back burner of your life. And you're feeling the pull of the Spirit to say, come home again. Come home again. We want to invite you to obey the, the call of the Spirit and say yes to that call. The second call is this. I've had one prayer for our church during this series, and it's been this. God, would you irreparably break our heart for the lost? God, would we be like you, the Father, anxiously awaiting at the porch for those who wander and find themselves in distant countries, and we be the first who sprint down the road to meet them as they come? God, would you irreparably break our heart for the lost? Oh, Lord, that we would lose sleep, that we couldn't eat, that we would, that we would not stand another moment as people are suffering under the weight of life without you. Oh, God, and that our church, that our heart would bleed for the lost. And so, if you feel the invitation of the Spirit saying, come home, and you want to say yes to that, I want to invite you to respond on this side of the room. All you're going to do is come forward, place your arms open as just a sign and symbol to God saying, I'm home. I want to come home. And if you want God to irreparably break your heart for the lost, and this is no small prayer, but you feel the Spirit saying you've gone dull in this area, you've gone apathetic in this area, I want to invite you to respond on this side of the room, same way. Put your arms open and saying, God, let me have your heart, the heart of the Father who longs to see the lost come home. I invite you to respond now as we worship.